Hello there, beautiful beings. Welcome back to the Starseed Network podcast. My name is Saula Ilona Vaida. I am your host and personal spirit guide, bringing you with me on this journey of exploring our spiritual human experience, the ascension process on earth, and getting to speak to amazing lightworkers, practitioners, and starseeds all around the world. So today I am really excited to introduce this interview with Zofia Renea Morales and she goes by the sensible mystic. She is a transformation alchemist and teacher who guides clients to find the gold within their most painful life transitions, helping people from all backgrounds notice how life wraps the best gifts in the shittiest wrapping paper. She is also the host of Sovereign Self and the creator of Conscious Enlightenment Process. So I'm really excited to welcome Zofia today in this little interview. And we're diving into talking about her journey and her process, which I feel like a lot of us can really relate to right now with the uncertainty that we're facing in the world and how the universe will really, really push us to where we're meant to go. Either sometimes it can be a little bit intensely, a little bit forcefully, but we're diving into that today and I hope you guys enjoy. Feel free to like, subscribe, share the episode with someone who you feel might resonate and let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here. I will have the information below to where you can find Zofia um, on her own show and her website and connect with her if you feel called to do so. I'm also offering some spaces left for the upcoming month for quantum healing sessions and intro calls if you would like some insight and guidance on your journey and your process and diving in on a quantum level to really heal and reprogram your nervous system, your mind, and reintegrate everything into your higher self. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I am so excited to be here with you. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So I would love if you could share a little bit about your journey, about what you do, what you offer, anything that you'd like to share. Oh, well, that'll take us like the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to cover all that, I guess what I will say on, on the journey side of things is... I did not come into the woo world willingly. Uh, I had to be kind of drug, (laughs) kicking and screaming the (laughs) whole way. Uh, I was raised uh, very much to live from my mind, a very intellectual person. I have a lot of advanced schooling. All of my career when I was in the Fortune 100 was very analytical, two plus two equals four troubleshooting and project management of like super complex projects. And, uh, so I mean, that's, that's how I was approaching this world and this life. And I had bought into the whole concept that, you know, if you do all the things you're trained to do, get the good education, find a spouse, you know, get a, a career that, that makes a nice amount of money, have the 2.5 kids, the picket fence and the cars in the driveway, you will at some point in your life be happy. (laughs) Mm. And I came to find out the hard way that happiness is not a destination. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was part of what my soul, I think, was trying to wake me up to. 
because while I was in the corporate world, I would come home each evening and look at my watch and look at my husband and go, are we there yet? Meaning, mm. have we reached retirement age so I can go do something I really want to do? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, your soul will always kind of invite you gently to, you know, expand your vision and to look at things from another perspective and make the changes that really will put you, what do I want to say, truly on purpose in this life. And that's purpose with a capital P, mm-hmm. the, the reason you came here in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't, I'm not the kind that takes hints very well. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised by a German and a Norwegian, so I have a double dose of stubborn and stoic, and I come by it honestly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there you. I have a, a show also, so I talk to a lot of people about their journeys. Mm. And a lot of people will say, oh, I was in the bookstore, and this book, you know, kind of fell on me, and I went, oh, well, maybe I should take this home with me. Um, that is not me. The, the book would jump off the shelf and I would go, well, they did a piss poor job of shelving that book, didn't they? And I would pick <laughs> it up and put it right back where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> so subtle, subtle hints were just not going to work with me. And so ultimately I ended up uh, in what I called a reverse Job. If you remember the story of Job from the Bible, um, he was a deeply faithful man. He had a deep Uh, relationship with God, with the divine, and was living his life in a very spiritually directed way and had a great deal of blessings in his life. And the devil came and said, well, I don't think that would remain that way if all his blessings went away. Mm -hmm. And God told him, okay, knock yourself out, do your thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think he will remain faithful. And although he lost virtually everything, he did remain faithful. And my story is kind of the reverse of that because I didn't have any faith. I had no relationship whatsoever with the divine and everything in my life began to go away, I believe, to see if I could come to the conclusion that I needed to have some faith in my life. Mm. So I, I did not come into this world easily. Um, I trained in science, as I mentioned, I worked in the Fortune 100 And I was in data center management. And so I worked with computer operators and programmers and networking people and ran complicated projects with (laughs) these incredible Gantt charts and Mm. ridiculous timeframes attached to them. And so I was a very, very concrete, mundane kind of person. And uh, it, it took quite a bit to get me to let that go and to go, hmm, Maybe there is something more. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Mm. So what was that big aha moment? Like what kind of pushed you over the edge, so to speak, into this world? Uh, It took several shoves. There was Mm. not, I think, a single aha moment. Um, When your soul wants you to consider things, it will oftentimes put you on the sidelines for a while so mm-hmm. you have headspace to think about things. And in my case, I was getting increasingly ill. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, and I'd been looking for the answer to this for several decades, uh, had started to erode my mind. The mm-hmm. thing that I have been so proud of all these years and have so carefully cultivated, <laughs> the thing that made my career 
in, uh, in science and in corporate uh, started to fail me. And not like, oh, I, does anybody know where I set my keys fail me? It's like I've forgotten whole chunks of my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And my husband would come home from work and say, what happened today? And I either couldn't remember or I couldn't find the words to tell him. It was not the normal absent-mindedness that happens when you start to get into your 30s and 40s. This was like 85-year-old dementia kind of problems. And it was getting really serious to the point that I couldn't hold down a job and work outside the home full-time. And I'd gotten to the point I couldn't go into the kitchen and make dinner in 30 minutes. Uh, Just simple, you know, steak on the grill and a salad would take me three hours. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's how bad it had gotten. Wow. And, you know, I'd been looking for a while for an answer, and I finally did find it uh, after my soul kind of put me through a whole bunch of hmm, mm-hmm. running at walls kind of moments, I guess is a good description for it. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, I was unable to work. My husband's career was having some ups and downs at that time. There's been some major shifts in his industry. And he was coming to the conclusion very quickly that he needed to get an additional degree in order to take his career in a direction that was going to keep him more steadily employed than he had been. Mm -hmm. And so all of this converged about 12 months after we'd moved to a whole new state. And literally, we dipped into the last of our reserves to make this move happen so that he could start this job that was supposed to be for three to five years. Mm -hmm. And after 12 months, they came back and said, you know, we weren't completely upfront with you when we told you about the amount of money we raised. We did raise that amount of money, but we also spent almost all of it. Mm -hmm. And so there was quite literally nothing for him to turn that company around with. And so there we were, you know, we haven't recouped the cost that it took to move from Indiana to Arizona. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now all of a sudden the income stream is gone. And it's really hard to budget zero. There's no math that makes zero work. And so... We came to the conclusion fairly quickly that we would have to declare bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And we also concluded that my husband had to go back to grad school. Now, those should be mutually exclusive events. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Takes money or loans or something to go back to school, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had found a bankruptcy attorney and explained that my husband needed to go back to grad school and I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And he actually had a plan. I'm like, no shit, we can do both of these things at the same time. It's like, all right. Mm. So we got my husband started down the path of grad school as we're in the process of filing this bankruptcy. One of the other things that came out as I was working with this attorney was that we couldn't do the Chapter 7 bankruptcy. That's the one where they go in and they go, Yep, you don't owe anybody anything, tough shit creditors, okay? Mm -hmm. And you just get a clean slate and you start over. And the reason we couldn't choose that was because we still did have some retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. And the trustee in our area who handled the Chapter 7 kind of bankruptcies 
like to bust into retirement accounts and empty them out. Mm. And so our attorneys basically told us, you need to go into a payer bankruptcy. I'm going to clear my throat. Hang mm -hmm. on. Which means you have to have actual income, <laughs> mm -hmm. which we don't have. And so I, as I was talking with him, he said, you know, the optimal number would be $50,000 a year. Okay. Because it gets you to the shortest bankruptcy you can have. I came home, discussed it with my husband, let him know what it was we were trying to accomplish. And within a couple of days, he got an invitation from a buddy of his to go to a professional conference. Mm -hmm. And it was back where we'd come from in Indiana. So he went and, you know, helped him man his booth and networked with people while he was there because we're he's still looking for work. <laughs> and he hooked up with a gentleman that he'd known earlier on who was very excited to find out that my husband didn't have anything else happening at that time because he really wanted him to partner with him to start a new branch in his business. Mm. And so my husband came back from that conference with exactly $50,000 a year in income. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we got the bankruptcy going, but now we have another problem. There's always another problem, right? And this one is we're in a bankruptcy now, uh, but the job is in Indiana and we live in Arizona. And if you move, you end up under a different set of bankruptcy laws. Mm. So we can't just move back to Indiana together, but we can send him back to work at this job while I remain in Arizona, which maintains the residency for the purposes of filing the bankruptcy. Okay, mm -hmm. so how do we pay for two places to live when the trustee, you know, controls all the money? <laughs> like, okay, well, let's find out what it's really going to cost. And I wrote an email to everybody that I knew in Indiana. And I'd been in outside sales. So it was a pretty substantial list of people. And it went something to the effect of, we're looking for a place for my husband to stay. He's gotten a job out that direction. We are in a bankruptcy, laid out all the circumstances. I need a place he can sleep. I need a shelf in the fridge, internet connection, and a place for him to park the car. He's very quiet. He's well-mannered. You won't even know he's there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, oh, no cats because he's deathly allergic to cats. And as you can imagine, I got a lot of no's back. But then I got something that I did I never expected from someone that I probably wouldn't have said, oh, yeah, she's likely to, to offer me this because I didn't have a very close relationship with her. Mm -hmm. And it turns out her mother had passed away. And her mother had a condo in one of these over 50 communities. And at that time, the market was completely upside down. So there was no way she could sell it. And in the, the documents for the condo, it doesn't allow you to rent it out. It has to be owner-occupied. And so she couldn't get rid of this thing. And it's sitting empty. And she has to run by and, like, check on it periodically and... She's juggling more than a body can handle in that moment anyway. She's, she's a lawyer. She's got two special needs kids. She's got two kids fixing to go off to college. She's got a sister-in-law who has special needs and aging parents, mm -hmm. uh, in-laws and her own. And so it's like, all right. Hmm. So it turned out that our need 
was actually a blessing to her. Mm. And she wrote back and said, it would be such a favor to me if he would come and live in this condo and keep it up and keep an eye on it for me. And all I need him to do is to pay for the utilities he uses. Mm, wow. <laughs> Damn, that's my price point right there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I keep running into these situations that I call running at walls. It's like it looks like it's impossible mm. and you follow your intuition towards it. And it it turns out that there's either no wall there. The wall dissolves or there's a sharp left turn that you couldn't see mm -hmm. from back where you were. And so we had a whole series of these events that happened. Mm -hmm. And so he's got a job. We now have health insurance, which means I can start looking at what's going on with me again, except that I'm still in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so it, it took until after we had finally filed the bankruptcy for me to be able to go out and be with him so I could take advantage of the health insurance. Mm -hmm. And eventually I did find a functional medicine doctor who took insurance. This is like looking for a unicorn. Mm -hmm. They generally don't. Uh, but I found one and I managed to finally get a diagnosis because I'd been tested for every freaking thing under the sun. Uh, lupus, um, Epstein-Barr, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, and there's a bunch of other stuff, hypothyroidism and, and a few things like that. And all of it came back that it wasn't the thing, but I was still like really sick. Mm. And so I went through a bunch of tests with the functional medicine guy. And if you've ever been to a fun functional medicine doctor, when I say a bunch of tests, I'm not kidding. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to send you for lab work. And I'm like, okay. So I go down and sit in the chair and the lady comes over with a test tube rack full of test tubes. Wow. I'm thinking to myself, why is she bringing everybody's test tubes over? They usually grab, you know, the two or three that they need and that's it. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, why so many tubes or, or why'd you bring somebody else's tubes? I forget how I put it. And she's like, oh no, these are all for you. I'm like, Damn, I'm going to need a transfusion after this. <laughs> wow. And so they looked at everything. They, they sequenced my DNA. They looked for metabolic, um, dysfunctions and mutations and toxic, um, what do they call them? Toxic metal exposure, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of things like that. And they found a few things. And when we took care of them, it, I mean, it was helpful, but it didn't significantly change my condition. Mm -hmm. And so on like the third or fourth visit with him, he says, I think we should test you for Lyme disease again. Because I had told him that I'd been tested for Lyme disease previously and it came back negative. So it wasn't at the top of our list. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but it came back negative. So what, what is it going to serve to do it again? And he says, well, there are a couple of things you need to know about the Lyme disease test that's approved by the FDA and that the CDC uses to track this. I'm like, okay. Now, I've trained in biochemistry, so I understand a lot of what he's saying. He's like, well, it's, it's specific enough, but it's not sensitive enough. Now, that's shorthand in science. I will explain in English what this means. For a test to be useful, if it comes back positive, it has to only come back 
for the thing that they're looking for. There shouldn't be anything else that would make it come back positive. This is the thing that they call specificity. And so if you're positive for Lyme, they know for a fact it's Lyme disease and not some other bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. And Lyme disease, the Lyme disease test gets a, a check mark on that. It's good on being very specific. If it says you have Lyme, you actually have Lyme. Now, where it comes up short is in the sensitivity side of it. Uh, It is not sufficiently sensitive that it can always 100% pick up the fact that you have Lyme disease. So you can have Lyme disease at a very low level because it's in a different one of its forms. It's tricky because it has three different forms that it can be in in your system. And it generally only gets to the point that it has these three forms after you've had it for quite a while, which is why they tell you to look out for the bullseye rashes and that kind of thing. Because if they catch it early, it doesn't have time to go into those other forms. And that early form is the one that's really vulnerable to antibiotics. If you had it for a long time, then it has time to establish the other two forms, which are not as sensitive to the antibiotics. And some, and one form is completely resistant. So I'm like, okay, I, I hear you. You're basically telling me that if Lyme, the Lyme disease test says, yes, you have Lyme, you can totally go to the bank on that. But if it tells you, no, you don't have Lyme, it's actually just saying we can't tell if you have Lyme. Ooh, that puts it in a whole different light now, doesn't it? Mm. And so I'm like, well, what do we do? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that we just run this test again. He's like, well, I'm kind of obligated to run it again, but there are two other tests out there that uh, can actually get us to the real answer. They're not the ones that the CDC is, uh, what I want to say, has embraced, but they look for the other two forms of it. And so if either of those comes back, we can pretty safely say that, yes, you you do in fact have Lyme, even though the CDC-approved test doesn't uh, indicate that. Like, okay, I'm down with that. And the results came back, and oh my God, did I have Lyme. (laughs) And so it's like, wow, okay, so I've got an answer, right? Happy, happy, Mm. (laughs) we've got an answer. And better yet, the doctor's like, yeah, and I have a two-year protocol that I've had like 70% success with in terms of getting rid of Lyme, Mm. which is like a whole awesome sauce because if you've had any exposure to the world of Lyme and trying to get rid of it, uh, if you don't catch it early, the odds of getting rid of it go way down. Yeah. And so the fact that this guy had a 70% chance that he could actually clear this out for me over two years was like, okay, that's a lot of hope. Mm And so he gives me this stack of papers, which is the whole protocol he's going to take things through. And I asked for it because I'm going to need the insurance company to pony up if I'm going to do this. Because Mm -hmm. as mentioned, we're in a bankruptcy. I don't have uh, sovereignty over my own money right now. Mm -hmm. So I took that back home with me. I called up the nice folks at the insurance company and explained. I'm like, good news, I've got a diagnosis, right? And I even have a plan. I need to understand how much of this plan you're going to cover. She says, okay, what's your diagnosis? I said, it's chronic Lyme. 
And she says, oh, oh, hang on. Like, what? She says, we don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. What? Isn't that freaking convenient for you, insurance company? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, exactly. And I got a lesson in um, only asking questions that you really want the answer to. Because mm. in my mind, I thought, good God, can it get any worse? <laughs> And I immediately got the answer to that question mm. <laughs> because insurance lady says, uh, oh, yeah, and you should know your doctor's no longer in network. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's all it really needed. <laughs> and so now it's like, geez, how am I supposed to get better? I, I can't work. I'm so sick. My husband's working a full-time job and going back to school full-time. He's barely sleeping between that and taking care of me. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a bankruptcy. There aren't going to be any loans. The bankruptcy trustee is certainly not going to go, oh, yeah, we'll adjust your payment way down so you can do this. That's, that's not a happening. So how am I supposed to make this happen? And it occurred to me that perhaps I should call my parents. Mm. Um, my parents, as I mentioned, Norwegian and German, were always really clear with me that when you turn 18, you will take care of your own stuff. Do not expect to come back home and mooch off the parents. Don't expect to come back and do your laundry at our place. You are, you are responsible for yourself and your stuff. And I have always been responsible for myself and my stuff since I was 18. Mm -hmm. But I thought perhaps this might be the one exception. We know exactly what the problem is. I just need a little bit of help to get there. And then I can go back to that self-sufficiency state. Mm -hmm. And so I called up my father and explained everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. And the bank of dad was empty. Mm -hmm. And I am not happy about the situation. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find the way out of this, and I'm not seeing the way out of this. Mm -hmm. And they've already started me on my first round of antibiotics. So I'm, I was sick before. I'm much sicker now because Lyme is toxic while it's alive and far worse when you start to kill it off because it just explodes and releases all the toxins at once. Mm -hmm. And so I'm much sicker than I was even a week or so earlier. And my brain has stopped going through normal sleep cycles. I, I lay down in the bed. I'd really like to sleep, but it doesn't go through the sleep cycles. Mm -hmm. But I had discovered that if I can meditate... I at least feel halfway refreshed in the morning. Mm -hmm. But that night, there was no meditation. It was not happening. My brain was like a trapped squirrel, and it keeps going down all these, these same directions and running into these walls of, well, maybe my husband can get more work. No, he's not sleeping right now. Maybe I can find some kind of a job. I can't even freaking remember what he asked me. 
that I did earlier in the day. I can't make dinner in 30 minutes. It takes me three hours. I'm not employable. You know, dad's already said no. The insurance company has said no. I can't get a loan because I'm in a bankruptcy and I'm going around and around and around. And there's just no answer. And it was around three in the morning that I just stopped. I ran out of... impetus, I guess is the best word for it. I I was just done. I think some people would call it surrender. I think it was more exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) And the only thing that I had left in front of me was something that I had not done in a great long while. And that was, well, perhaps I could pray to God. Now, I hadn't talked to God in a good long while, not because I hadn't been introduced to him as a child, but because I'd been introduced to him in a very fundamentalist sect Mm -hmm. of Protestantism. That whole hellfire, brimstone, damnation kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You are, you know, a lowly worm sinner, and you were born bad, and you will never be good on your own, and the only way is through God kind of Mm -hmm. bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it took me a very long time, about five decades, to finally separate what is the church's fundamentalist, where actually it's more about the survival of the institution than it is about the the experience of God and having a relationship with God. And to kind of separate that out from who God actually is. And so at that time, I sat with, what was it that I knew about God? Because when I was a child, you know, you would sit in Sunday school or whatever, and they're telling these stories about God asking people to sacrifice their children or to to attack cities and slaughter everybody that was in them. And I can remember at the time going, you t- you say that God is loving and all this stuff, and then he's asking for this. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I remember in my deep in myself thinking that what they're telling me has nothing to do with God. Mm-hmm. And so in this moment, I'm remembering what I instinctively knew about God as a child before all that other crap came in. And what I knew about God as a child was that God is love, Mm -hmm. that God really, truly does care about me. Mm -hmm. And God would never, ever ask me to do anything that would hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I will pray to God. And I I debated with myself a little bit, do I like try and explain my absence or, and I finally decided, let's just keep it simple. I'm not going to even deal with any of that. And I settled on God. I will do anything to get better. And I meant it with every fiber of my being. And I immediately got an answer in the form of a little voice in the back of my mind that said, really, anything? And that kind of stopped me for a minute. 
It's like, wow. Okay, God, you have a point. Anything doesn't have edges on it, right? Mm. <laughs> it's an extremely large uh, area that I have just agreed to. And I sat with that for a while, and I thought about what are my edges? What are the things that I would not do? And it basically comes down to I don't, I don't hurt other people. I'm not going to lie or cheat or steal, and I'm certainly not going to become an axe murderer. Those are kind of my edges there. Mm. Good ones. <laughs> I think so, <laughs> yeah. and I, I, think, I think they're they're. They're very workable edges. Mm. And I thought about what God would, could potentially ask of me. And going back to that intuitive understanding of the divine, I came to the conclusion that God would not ask me to go those places. Mm. And so to be very clear, Responding to the voice in my mind, I said, God, for you, I will do anything. And I got my first miracle because I fell asleep. Mm. And I awoke in the morning with a very clear understanding that I had to go get one of these clearing IVs that was like $250 a pop. Mm-hmm. Even though I had no idea how I was going to pay for it, I'm like, okay, well, We'll figure it out after, but this is what has to happen. So I went in to get that IV that day, and as I'm sitting in the infusion room, the doctor walks in, which was surprising because that's not a place he goes. That's the nurse's territory. (laughs) So I figured he must have been sent to talk to me, and I waved him over and explained everything. Insurance is out of the picture. We're in a bankruptcy. I'm now a cash pay client. What are my options if insurance is out of the picture? And he brightened up and he smiled at me and I went, that didn't seem like the response I was anticipating. (laughs) And he says, good, now you have all the options. I'm like, oh, there are more options? (laughs) I had no idea. And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have a naturopath herbalist who's on our staff His appointments are half the price of mine, and he doesn't use these exotic antibiotics and IVs and stuff. He uses herbs that are like $30 to $40 a bottle. Like, okay, and now you're talking my my language here. You know, you've cut the visits price in half, and you've greatly reduced what it's going to cost to go through any kind of a protocol. And so I'm like, okay. I got nothing to lose. I'll go make an appointment with the herbalist naturopath, which I would have never considered even a week earlier than this because two plus two equals four. Rational, scientific, replicatable. Show me the study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's all anecdotal herbal stuff, right? <laughs> but I don't have a choice in this moment. This is the door that has opened in front of me. And so the scientist is going to go to the herbalist. (laughs) Mm. And so I did get an appointment with the herbalist. And this is the point at which I tend to get sucked into the awakening side of the story and forget to tell you guys that 
uh, in three months of working with the herbalist, I was cured of the Lyme disease. So I will mention that before I get sucked into the other part of the story, because I don't need a bunch of emails later going, ah, my cousins, sister-in-laws, whatever it is, went through and did, have you tried this? I, I don't need any of those. I'm, I'm good now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but as I'm sitting in the waiting room to get the appointment with him, I was informed he's running behind. So I'm looking for something to kind of occupy myself with. And he's got the usual array of magazines out there, which isn't really my thing. And then there's this book. I'm like, well, let me check out the book because books are my thing. Mm -hmm. And this one said the emotion code on the cover. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, well, isn't that intriguing? Because as mentioned, raised by a Norwegian and a German, what I was taught about emotions is they're inconvenient and you must shove them down and pretend like you don't have any at all. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and press on regardless, mm. kiddo. Make like it didn't happen. Okay. Mm. Now, this is extremely dysfunctional way to deal with your emotions. Mm -hmm. As proven by the couple of decades that I spent in talk therapy, <laughs> which did... It helped me in many ways. I'm not going to say that talk therapy is unhelpful. I will say that it is slow to help. Uh, and in my case, it didn't actually take any of the heat out of the emotions that had been shoved down. It, mm. It's like the trigger always remained fresh. Uh, but it did do some amazing things for me. I mean, it did help me to leave my abusive first husband and divorce his ass. So... Um, it's not to say that it's unhelpful, but it didn't solve my problem with the emotions. Mm -hmm. So if this guy has the code for emotions, I want to know. And I open up the book and I'm starting to read it. And pretty soon the owner of the book comes back for it. And now it's like, damn, I have to figure out how I'm going to get the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I did. I managed to get a hold of a copy of the book. And I... I did not just read it. When I go through a self-help kind of book, I don't read it and then go, well, maybe I should apply some of this. I literally follow it like it's a step-by-step -step instruction manual, which most of them are written to be anyway. And so I'm going through the thing, and he's talking about muscle testing to determine what emotions need to be cleared, how many, what we need to know about it. And it's, it's a little out there, but the scientist kind of likes it because muscle testing is what we in science would call a black box. Mm -hmm. And what a black box is, it's a process that we don't understand exactly how it works, but we can prove that if we put in this particular input, we get this predictable result out of the other side. And with muscle testing, I could prove that it does in fact show me truth and it does in fact show me falsehood. And so as a scientist, because it is replicatable, I am okay with the fact that it's a black box. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I put that out there because I know a lot of us struggle with our, our conscious mind, right? And the woo stuff is sometimes like too big of a stretch for us when we're coming from this really logical place. So this was like my, my science-based step into the woo world, if you will. Mm. And so I'm literally following along and I'm clearing out bunch of his, bunches of emotion. I'm actually starting to feel quite a bit better. And a lot of the, the trigger stuff is starting to go away, which is, okay, cool. 
I'm now I'm sold. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm, I'm type A. I, I embrace it. I admit it. Project mm -hmm. manager much of my career. So I know exactly how many motions there are. I can clear, you know, seven to 10 of these a day. I've got, you know, it's going to be a six month project to get through, you know, I've got it all laid out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, even, even healing work responds well to project management. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he, he has this section in the book about heart walls mm -hmm. and I didn't even need to muscle test that one. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. I know I have one of these because I make a conscious decision whether I'm going to let you behind it. And I read his section on heart walls, and he made a really good case for taking it down. All right. So I set about taking it down, and I made it priority over everything else. Mm -hmm. And as I'm taking my heart wall down, 10 emotions at a time, because that's the most you can do, mm -hmm. <laughs> weird shit starts happening in my life. Things that the scientist is not at all comfy with. Mm -hmm. Things like... Seeing crossed over dead people, mm. angels, guides, fairies, little devas of plants and animals and rocks and things in our world. And the scientist is very unhappy about this. Uh, but the explanation that I settled on was, I've got more brain damage than I realized. <laughs> <laughs> the lime has eaten more of my brain than I realized. This is not good. And so I'm starting to get a little concerned that my husband might notice something weird or off with me and I may end up with the guys in the wraparound coat sleeves. And mm. yeah, this is not, this is probably not going to be good. And I'm continuing to take this heart well down. And I'm noticing as I go into stores now, I've always been a little sensitive. I could never like watch Lassie as a child because I was super worried about Jimmy being down the well and would they understand Lassie? Mm. No, humans don't understand dog. Will they follow her and save? Mm. Yeah, I couldn't. It was just too much. I couldn't do it and cry at Hallmark commercials. But this is like a factor of a thousand worse empathy. I walk into Walmart, for example, and it's like this mm. wall of energy that hits me like I've walked into a rock concert at full volume. It's a yeah. physical body blow practically. And I'm literally feeling the headache and the backache of the people around me in the grocery store. Like, wow, mm. what the heck is going on here? And I don't have a real good explanation for that other than, well, must be because I'm so sick that my empathy is like way up. Okay, fine. And so I'm writing that off. And then it continues to evolve. And pretty soon I'm seeing things from the future and I'm seeing events from the past that I've been wondering about. And the scientist in me is like, yeah, and your imagination is now running amok and there's no way you can prove or verify or validate any of that. It, maybe it's all just a figment of your imagination, right? I'm continuing to discount all these events. And then your, your soul will continue to work on you until it reaches this point where it actually convinces you. Yeah. And I had an afternoon. I, I'd been 
meditating because I was visualizing, you know, the, the Lyme disease being cleared from my body, mm -hmm. this kind of thing I would do. And in that particular round of meditation, I saw the energy of Archangel Michael. Mm -hmm. And when I connected with that energy, I said out loud a Hebrew prayer. Uh, it just came out of me. Mm -hmm. And that brought me out of the meditation. I'm like writing down the phonetics and let's go Google and figure out what this is. It's the candle lighting ceremony. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow. And now the scientist is, is really reaching because I was raised in Minnesota. Uh, Germans, Norwegians, Poles, you know, this is this is what we have in that area of the country. And I think there is like one temple and maybe 10 guys just enough to have a ceremony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not like I've been exposed to Hebrew language or any of the traditions that really go along with that. I sat in one Seder when I was in college in a comparative religious religion course. One Seder, that was my exposure mm -hmm. to Hebrew language. And so here's the scientist. Well, you must have subconsciously remembered that's that prayer from that experience. Mm. <laughs> it, that's a long reach, right? Mm. <laughs> okay, fine. That's, that's the explanation we're going with. And so my soul is like, we've got to amp it up again. And I came home from the grocery store one afternoon, and I see my neighbor, and she's staggering under her husband's weight trying to help him into the house. Mm -hmm. And they're both in their mid-80s. He's twice the size she is. And the odds of her getting in there without them both dumping on the ground are not good. So let the ice cream melt go over, and we get him in the house. And as we're doing this, she's telling me how, how worried she is for him. His kidneys have gotten so bad. And she's got to go get an emergency appointment for him with a kidney doctor. Mm. Like, well, you go do that. I'll stay here with him. Don't you fuss. I'll, I'll keep him company while you, while you handle it. And so we're standing in the living room together. And there's not much I can do for him. It's not like sitting down or laying down is going to make the pain any different. And so we're standing in the living room, and I'm holding his hands to provide what human comfort I can. Mm -hmm. And I notice that his eyes close, and I can see his lips moving. And I know them to be truly devout people, the best kinds of Christians um, that really live out their faith. They have that personal relationship with God, and they're not judgy and pushy the way some Christians are. Mm -hmm. they, just, they just live their example. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel very uncomfortable just watching this personal moment that he's having with God. So I go ahead and close my eyes to give him some privacy. And when I do that, there's this little flame that shows up in the center of my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of jumping and flickering and dancing the way they do right before they go. And I'm given this understanding that that's where he is right now with his life force. He is on the edge of going poof and leaving. And I'm quite confident it's not the scientist that asked this question. 
But I asked in my mind, is there something we can do about that? And the instant I completed that thought, that little tiny flickery flame became this bonfire. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how big it got because he dropped my hands and so my eyes whipped open to see what's, what's up. And he looks at me and says, are you a healer? Mm. And I'm looking around to see who he's talking to because mm, no, not over, uh-uh, no, not replicatable. There is no evidence for this faith mm. healing stuff. <laughs> no, 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 no. And I was saved from having to come up with some kind of an answer because his wife came back and says, we've got the appointment and we have to leave right now fabulous. <laughs> I'm relieved. Let's get you guys out to the car. And so I put them in the car and went back in my house and I hid for two days. It took two days for the scientist to convince me that nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. Not only had nothing happened, but now my mother's voice is working on me. You know, good Midwestern girl, your neighbor needs help. You haven't brought over a casserole. You didn't come shovel their sidewalk, right? <laughs> to do something concrete to help them in this moment of distress because I've convinced myself that she's either with him in the ICU or planning a funeral. So I finally guilted myself next door and I went over. The car was in the driveway. Okay, good. I'm probably going to find her at home. And I tapped on the door and she opens the door and there's this big smile on her face. I'm like, okay, so we're not planning a funeral. This mm -hmm. is, <laughs> I think we can chat, we can safely cross that one off. And I said, how, how are you doing? How's Jay? She says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. Jay has so many questions for you. And my stomach sank through my shoes. Like, oh, my God, ah, I don't have any answers for those kind of questions. And I'm committed. I've come over the threshold. Now I've got to go into the living room. So I go in the living room, and there he is. He's kicked back in his bark lounger. He's got his drink at his elbow and his book and his remote, and he's looking fat and happy. <laughs> like, oh, hey, Jay, how you doing? He says, pretty good. You know, it was the strangest thing. I'm like, what? By the time I got to the doctor's office, I was feeling pretty good again. And they put me through the usual battery of tests that they put me through. And my kidney function came back normal. Mm. And that was the moment the scientist had to sit down and shut the fuck up. And I began to accept, in my scientific way, that this might just have something to do with the anything that I agreed to. And that it might be the moment to look back on all the weird shit that's been happening over the last two weeks with perhaps a different lens. So that's how I entered the woo world, kicking and screaming all the way. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's such a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, it's, it was an interesting trip. Mm. And I've got to say, although that was kind of the watershed moment where it's like, I do need to start looking at things differently. 
that doesn't mean that it was in any way easy. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> so that that was one of like the three questions you initially asked me. What else do we have on the list? <laughs> and I'll try to be more concise. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I just I just really like want to honor and appreciate sharing that story and, and everything that you've navigated as well, because yeah, it, it's so powerful to also have lived this whole experience of being so kind of in that mindset of that very physical, very scientific, very analytical world. And now getting to live the experience of, you know, healing and being connected to these other realms and, it's like, I feel a lot of gratitude in my heart, especially being, you know, someone who's a bit younger and I've kind of was born into this reality. And like, I've gone through my whole, all of my own, you know, crazy and intense healing experiences, but also just to feel how, you know, across all generations, this is a collective awareness that's really happening. So it's just beautiful to feel that connection as well. Yeah, it is a beautiful thing to feel the connection. And I I think one of the things that I've noticed being around the woo world for a while now is there are a few myth, myths that kind of float around the woo world. Mm -hmm. And one of them is that you wake up and it's all butterflies and unicorns all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's not actually how it goes. Yeah, And waking up in and of itself is a very, what do I want to say, in some ways, profoundly disturbing thing. Um, because you go from a space of, what do I want to say, relative silence and separateness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've kind of got your shit and you can't run away from your shit. To like being turned on with all the psychic gifts turned on and that kind of stuff. And it gets really super noisy Yeah. until you figure out how to, what I want to say, selectively tune in and tune out certain things. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I work with a lot of empaths in my work mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that plagues us and I say us because I am a deeply empathic person, mm -hmm. uh, is the fact that we are human and we need to like set these boundaries, but we are also empathic and we've not, we're not taught to um, tune in and tune out from people. Mm -hmm. And so when someone comes to us and says, well, you need to set boundaries, you need to say no, right? There's no acknowledgement for, A, how hard it is as a human being just to do that yeah. in the first place. But then as an empath, not just saying no, but you also get all of the emotional kickback yeah. that comes when you set that boundary. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you've struggled with yourself to get to this point, and then you say no, and you're rewarded by like all the emotional backlash. <laughs> Mm. And so I, I feel incredible empathy for other empaths who have resorted to things like, well, people pleasing, and I'm going to try and heal everybody around mm -hmm. me uh, so that I can have some peace and quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's perfectly understandable to me why 
they would go down these paths, even though they're not what I want to say. It's, it's a form of self-defense, but it's also a form of self-sabotage in yes. some ways. And so I, I really feel for you if you have, uh, what I want to say, ended up down one of those roads, but I totally understand why you ended up down that road. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'd like to say is you don't have to stay on that road. There are other ways to operate in this world that don't leave you chained in people-pleasing and some of that sort of behavior that can become so codependent and dysfunctional. Mm, absolutely. And that's been, a, that's been a big thing that has kind of been coming to my attention and experienced that intensity of, you know, receiving so much information and receiving all these downloads and also, you know, just anyone on this ascension process, it's like you're tuned into the collective as well. So, you know, you could be somewhere on the other side of the world and feeling like everything that's happening in Iran and everything that's happening with this collective feminine and, you know, navigating that along with your own stuff. Yeah, and the earth, <laughs> some of us are really tuned into the earth. And so like earthquakes and fires and tsunamis, that kind of information can come at you in huge, what I want to say, huge waves that just like sweep you off your feet. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are ways to, what I want to say, create separation and boundary yeah. that will keep that kind of stuff out unless you want to allow it in for a specific reason. Uh, in my case, I will turn it, tune it in. If I'm working with a client, it's like, okay, what do I need to know about you and your life? I will tune in specifically to you and your world. Mm -hmm. And then I will turn it back down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it is possible to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's necessary to do that if you're really going to function in the world and not end up you know, this, this hermit out on the edge of society away from all the technology, all the people, all the stuff, so you can get some peace and quiet. Oh, it's yeah. possible to maintain your peace and quiet and still be part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's you know, really tuning into that full integration process. Yeah. Yeah, which sounds really simple, but it actually does take a little bit of work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's, there's some structure and some skills that need to be learned to get there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so like you said about, you know, project managing the healing process as well. Like how do you approach that when you're working with yourself or with other people? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting balance of the two things, right? Um Somebody was talking to me the other day. They're like, so what's your healing process? I'm like, do I have a process? Let me think about this. Because I do tend to, what do I want to say, spontaneously create a process or a structure and not realize that I have. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I do, in fact, have a process that I go through. And the first phase is like information gathering because I see patterns in things. Mm -hmm. And so I will pull your soul contract. I will pull your human design. Mm -hmm. I will give you an intake form that takes about two hours to complete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I will put all of that together along with like the soul contracts of your parents and your husband and your kids. And 
then we'll sit together and we go through what is causing you pain right now in this pile of stuff that we've just put together. Mm -hmm. Because generally speaking, there are areas of in our, in our lives where we're doing very well, where it feels good and aligned and it's all come together. And then there are areas of our life where perhaps we have a life lesson or some kind of a karma that's coming back around in a recurring cycle mm -hmm. uh, that we're either so over trying to even deal with it or that we feel like we've, we've healed through it, but the sucker keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. And so then we start to look at, okay, what is at the root cause of that? Is that something like mundane in your world that we can take a kind of a traditional approach to resolving? Or is it something that maybe is in your subconscious mind that perhaps we need to just deprogram a few things in your subconscious mind? Is it something from a past life, right? And so I start to look at the different places that the problem can originate from. And we follow your soul and its hints as we go through the process. And your soul will talk to you through your body. And so the typical thing I have a client do is, okay, this is, this is the intention we've set. Just relax, close your eyes, really sink into your body, breathe into your body, and tell me what part of your body is talking to you. Mm -hmm. Because your soul will talk to you through your physicality. And it, then once we've identified that there is a part talking to you, maybe it's your left knee, um, I have the client share with me what is going on with the left knee. And typically how information arrives for me is as they're describing the left knee and it feels like there's this burning sensation, like there's this arrow that's been jabbed through it, um, things will start to arrive for me mm -hmm. as they're describing it. And so we will go through and just follow the breadcrumbs and the information that arrives in my psychic senses, I guess, for lack of a better word. And we go to the root of whatever that is. If it was a past life thing, if it was something earlier in your life, it's, if it's a familial thing that has been passed down, because familial things do get passed down. Uh, going back to the scientific world, <laughs> there's this thing now that they call epigenetics, mm -hmm. which is basically when something happens, a particular stressor occurs in a person's life. We'll, we'll use people. It happens for animals, too. Uh, there will be changes that are made to how your DNA is expressed. We've got this DNA. They sequenced the whole thing a few decades ago. But what they've discovered is it's not all turned on 100% of the time. Some of it gets turned on and off at different stages of growth. Some of it gets turned on or off depending on what you're eating, how much food you're eating, if there's a famine. Um, and so it's not this fixed thing that we once thought it was. It, it's variable in its expression. And it is possible for a trauma, like an extreme fast, to arrive uh, that would create a relatively permanent shift in your DNA that can be passed on to your children and to their children. And so the family history, family curses, these kinds of things can actually literally be physically passed on from father to son to 
son to daughter through the generations. And so uh, it's possible for it to be some sort of an inherited familial thing. And it's possible for the cause of that to lie either in the physical, the emotional, the mental, or the spiritual. And so we just follow through until we find whatever it is. And then I've got a ridiculous number of modalities that gives me a great big toolbox. (laughs) (laughs) And we find the right tool to take care of that problem once we've identified it. And so the the troubleshooting that served me so well in corporate continues to serve me really well in the woo world as well. Mm. I so resonate with all of that, especially, you know, the toolbox and meeting people where they're at and communicating with, with different parts of the body and, you know, different parts of the self and the ego. And I do like a little bit more on the quantum side of kind of communicating with those different aspects of ourselves and our soul pieces and so resonate with, with what you're sharing about the epigenetics. Um, Cause I grew up in a Lithuanian household. So there's a lot mm. of inherited, Trauma, famine, oh, all that stuff. God, <laughs> yeah, that part of the world. Oh my God! And they had some absolutely amazingly deplorable, difficult mm. <laughs> uh, leaders and and things that happened in society. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So it, it's been such a, a journey, really, like being almost like the generational curse breaker of this whole bloodline. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, and I I see that a lot with healers. We tend to be the generation that it's like, okay, the buck stops here. Yeah. I'm fixing this for myself and for my children. And if my parents want to get on board and everybody who came before me, fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, you mentioned quantum, and I love quantum mm-hmm. uh, because there there are there's still this section in the woo world that's like well your sessions have to be done in person and and you know remote is not possible and i find that that is like a limiting belief that we've carried through with us generationally mm-hmm. uh but what i've noticed is anything that you do in person you can also do remotely oh yeah and it's it's just as impactful as if you're sitting there, you know, nose to nose and toes to toes. Mm, absolutely. And I've really seen that in, you know, even doing like Reiki sessions remotely and quantum healing sessions on Zoom. It's like I'm right there with that person. Like there's there's no limitation of space and time. It's like we're we're really deeply connecting and sometimes it can be even more powerful to do it in the quantum field when there's more space to kind of allow in all these other energies as well, these divine guides or, you know, higher self that wants to come in. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes it actually even makes it more clear than it would be in person, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're in person with somebody and you're actually laying hands on them, you know, it's like, well, you know, it was the warmth of your body. It was the this or the that that I was experiencing that made the difference. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing it remotely with someone, it's like, okay, I'm going to put my hand on your crown chakra and then I'm going to reach down into your heart chakra and I'm going to pull out this jagged thing that's gotten lodged mm-hmm. in there. And you pull it out and 
you know, rebuild the, the chakra. Mm -hmm. And they're like, that's incredible. I felt that thing come out yeah. and I, I felt the gaping hole and then I felt it, you know, knit back together and take a new form. And I felt the chakra begin to spin up again. And it's like, wow, I love it when spirit confirms things like that for me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's such a beautiful feeling to to be of service and to witness people transforming and being able to be a part of that. And so, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing about this and being here and, and sharing your gifts with us today. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. I absolutely adore doing this kind of thing. Awesome. Uh, and if you don't mind, I would love to give you listeners a gift yeah absolutely is that okay of course all right um one of the things that was a lesson I learned early on in my journey is we are all gifted mm -hmm. we all have a special set of gifts that we brought with us and a lot of us talk about our gifts in the form of like the psychic channel that it comes through which is a beautiful thing to know and understand but the bigger thing is the reason that you brought it here. And I created a quiz called the What is Your Number One Spiritual Superpower Quiz in order to help people recognize the gift set that they actually brought with them and to give them a peek into their purpose uh, for why they came here with that particular gift set. And so if you go to superpowerquiz.us, you can take that quiz and find out what your particular giftedness is. Because a lot of times the reason we feel like we're not gifted is because it seems so normal and ordinary to us. Mm. And it's only when we see ourselves through someone else's eyes that we recognize that, oh, oh, wow, maybe I am special. Mm. Maybe that mm. is something valuable. Mm. And so I wanted to give people that little that little affirmation, confirmation of their giftedness. So yeah, superpowerquiz.us will get you that. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. All right, beautiful beings. Thank you so much for tuning in today. So much gratitude to share this space with Sophia and hear her amazing story. So thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share the podcast with someone who you think might benefit from taking in this information and this story. And you can find Sophia on her website, transformationspace.co and on Instagram and Facebook under Sophia Renea. And yeah, make sure to check out the quiz and figure out what your superpower is. I took it and I think I got the broadcaster, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so gratitude for that. Um, reaffirmation of, yeah, everything. And it's so beautiful to feel how everything is a divine reflection and everything that we learn and we experience and take in from these outside reflections, inner reflections, through conversations, experiences. It's all guiding us where we're meant to go. So 
just taking that with us always and i'm sending you all so much love wishing you a beautiful morning evening noon night wherever you are in this crazy world and take sweet care of yourselves wake up rise up and greet the sun i'm grateful for another one breath running through me i'm truly blessed and everything's working out for me it's truly a story each morning I'm beautiful and worthy I'm safe and truly deserving speak it into existence and release your resistance speak it into existence and release your resistance wake up rise up I'm gonna be 